0: Miami delays a vote on firing its city attorney amid major budget dysfunction. The Miami Herald's editorial page editor says farewell, and Venezuela threatens Guyana. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at the holiday edition of the Miami Mess. Embattled city attorney Victoria Mendez gets to keep her job for the moment, while the city commission corrects all the multi-million dollar mistakes it's made with the budget. We'll also talk with Nancy Ankrum, the Miami Herald's editorial page editor, who is retiring after leading the paper to two Pulitzer Prizes. And we'll examine why Venezuela claims it should have two-thirds of neighboring Guyana. All that coming up right after the news. Tim Padgett. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. The Miami municipal mess has given us a lot to talk about this year, whether it's the legal swamp that powerful but allegedly corrupt commissioners Joe Corollo and Alex Diaz de La Portilla find themselves in, or the public relations morass Mayor Francis Suarez made for himself with his multi-million dollar and ethically questionable moonlighting, or the conduct of City Attorney Victoria Mendez, whose judgment is at the heart of a Miami City Commission effort to fire her, a, a vote that was put off yesterday. Mendez's troubles overlap this week with another City Commission emergency, salvaging a fiscal 2024 budget that the state of Florida had declared illegal because it wasn't passed properly back in September. The issue was finally resolved, but it was just one more reminder of the dysfunction plaguing the magic city these days. How do we write the ship in Miami? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio to ponder these Miami problems is WLRN investigative reporter Danny Rivero and WLRN's local government and investigations reporter Joshua Ceballos. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing, doing f- great. Doing fine, Tim. Glad to hear it. Danny, let's start with, with what we thought might be the Miami Commission's Firing of city attorney Victoria Mendez this week. The vote on that matter was delayed until
1: next month, correct? Uh, be, be, because Commissioner Ma- Manola Reyes was sick. Right. Um, C- Commissioner Reyes was sick. He was in the hospital. He could not attend. Um, and it does seem clear that there are a few votes that would vote in, in, in favor of firing the Miami city attorney. Not exactly clear if there's all the votes needed to, to oust her. And um, Commissioner Reyes could be one of the swing votes in that. But okay. um, just but, with with him out, they decided to postpone it for a couple weeks. Right. But her status is still employed. Her status is still employed. Um, yep. You know, interestingly, her contract is up for re- renewal now. So pretty soon uh-huh. they're going to have to make the decision to rehire her or fire her, or just let the contract lapse. Thanks for pointing that out. But the reason they may well fire
0: Mendez has to do at least in part with a possible conflict of interest issue that you and Josh here exposed earlier this year in your WLRN investigative project called Unguarded. Remind us what you guys uncovered that's hanging over
1: Mendez now. Right, Um, so Mendez is not squarely in the center of a lot of the reporting we did, but her husband is. And she yeah. does have, uh, you know, nexuses and and uh, we saw her signature on a couple key documents. But essentially this was people who are incapacitated. They need um, help in some kind of way and they get that help through the guardianship program of, of Dade County. Mm-hmm. And we found many of these properties owned by these people are being sold to a company owned by Victoria Mendez's husband and then another company that Victoria Mendez, the city attorney and her mother owned or her mother owned it. She was the vice president of it. They were buying these properties, many of which were never publicly listed, and then quickly reselling them for, for high profits. And um, that has increased the heat on top of many other things that, (laughs) that, that have been going on, but that, but our reporting has been cited several times as, We need we need to get her out of there. Right. And Josh, this week you
0: reported on a new wrinkle in that Mendez controversy, specifically having to do with the lawsuit against her and her husband. And it involves alleged signature fraud. Right. I mean, tell us tell us about that and how it might affect the city commission's eventual vote. On Mendez.
2: yeah so there's a lot of questions about this signature in, involved in this a uh, lawsuit brought against Mendez her husband and the city of Miami by a guy named Joe Alvarez Jose Alvarez I should say he uh, it, back in 2015 he he got a home from his mom um, and that had some code violations that were accruing to the point where in 2017 he reached out to Victoria Mendez what he says is he reached out to her asked her for help with the code violations. And uh, at some point, he ended up getting in touch with her husband who bought the house from him at uh, what he, what Jose Alvarez says is below market value mm-hmm. because of the code violations. And then uh, once Carlos Morales bought it, he was able to go before a city code enforcement board and they reduced the fines on the property from 270000 down to zero wow. in one moment. And part of that had to do with uh, their, within the city system, it said that the violations were complied like the, it was all fixed yeah. and it had a signature from an inspector named uh ricardo Frankie. now in a deposition Frankie says i never signed that an, ele- an electronic an signature. electronic signature yeah. mm-hmm. uh from uh Frankie and Frankie said i never did that nobody asked me uh to do that and this okay. was done uh without me knowing so that, and, cre- that creates more hot and, and,
0: and
1: if i can just add um because there was a hearing on this case with a lot of this just this morning so josh yeah. and i were watching so <sighs> uh-huh. um You know, one of the underlying allegations here against the city attorney and her husband is that Victoria Mendez received a call from someone about this case, and then she referred it to her husband in court today. Her husband, Carlos Morales, testified. He said, I did not get that that referral from my wife. I got it from uh, a man named Michael Barquette, who's actually a Miami-Dade County judge. (laughs) Okay. Uh, pretty okay. so, so yeah. pretty, pretty that was it. that was redacted in the documents yeah. but it came out when when they were speaking over. right and they,
2: they did show texts where uh, Carlos Morales did was texting with Jose Alvarez and said yeah uh, I'm friends with uh, this with this judge and pretty
0: pretty Baroque stuff Danny Mendez's situation changed significantly last month though with the election of two new city commissioners did it not who, who, who are they and
1: why are they targeting Mendez for a pink slip right um you know, anyone that's been following City of Miami politics for some time knows that things have not been um, in the best shape as of late, to, to, to put it lightly. To put it lightly. So the these two commissioners just won election late late last month. Um, one of them is Miguel Gabela, mm-hmm. um, who works in the you know,
2: car auto parts, sales auto parts,
1: yeah. auto parts sales in yeah. the, the Alapada area and, and Damien Pardo, who's been a longtime activist and, and worked in financial dealings with the, the real estate sector. Mm-hmm. Um, they both ran on platforms of cleaning up city hall. Okay. They, they, they want both explicitly say like the city's broken. We need to do something drastic quickly to change uh, and that puts
0: Mendez as one of the people in their sights definitely absolutely both
1: of them have been unequivocal Mm -hmm. if you're gonna fix city hall you need to Mm -hmm. you need to to address her specifically gabella has a big bone to pick because the city redrew the redistricting lines right and they carved it's like literally three houses that were carved out of this district it's like one city block and they carved his house out of his own district and then the uh-huh. city took him to court, saying he didn't—he wasn't eligible for election against the alleged uh-huh. corrupt ex commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla. He won that battle. Now he's sitting on the dais, and he's saying, "I have the power now. I'm right. going to get you out so of there because it, it, you tried to <laughs> screw me and the voters." over. So it gets—it gets personal. Gee, what a surprise in Miami,
0: um, Josh. You made the point to me earlier that we should remember that Mendez has served the city of Miami faithfully for many years, and and I want you to touch on that. But I'd also like to ask you to touch on the larger questions about her legal judgments. That's that's sort of at the heart of why she's in trouble,
2: right? So Mendez has been a you know uh, working as a municipal employee for many years. She's been city attorney for 13 years. Before that, she was an assistant city attorney, and and she's uh, like you said served the the city faithfully for a long time. And and I want to make it clear you know a lot of the things that are alleged in lawsuits and in all of these things are still just allegations nothing right. nothing's been proven right um and and i always try to give victoria mendez an opportunity to comment on, on on stories and and not saying anything but what's i think some of the questions that have been brought up are about her legal judgment and some of her legal opinions mm-hmm. in part uh to do with the budget which we'll get into later um but also to do with uh there was there's one that comes to mind for me which is she issued a legal opinion that the city of Miami cannot have um, medical cannabis dispensaries because it's federally illegal, even though the Florida, uh, the state of Florida legalized that a while ago. Almost uh, every city has it. Right. Almost right. every city has it. And uh, there was but,
0: also the, the legal judgment involved in, in how the Joe Carollo, uh yes. situation, which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. and And just and entering into a lot of lawsuits that then the city ends up losing mm-hmm. and then losing on appeal. And as the city attorney, she's the one that's entering the city into them. So it's I think people have wondered, like, we're spending all this money on attorney's fees and, and all these legal documentation and we keep losing. Why? What's going on? Yeah.
1: And, and j- just to add, um, you know, the commissioner, Joe Carollo, in his personal capacity, lost a major lawsuit earlier this year for sixty three and a half million dollars. Yeah. The city attorney made the determination that the city needed to defend him in that action, even though. The 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 Supreme Court of the United States decided that the allegations that the commissioner was facing was not in his official capacity. Mm-hmm. It was in his individual capacity. Right. It was a decision that the city should put those resources and, towards that, and, it, and they spent about eight million dollars. Right. I was just going to say that cost yes. the city a, a lot of dough. So, so I think
2: it's the it's the taxpayer bill that people yeah. are really right. annoyed about.
0: You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about the possible firing of Miami City Attorney Victoria Mendez and the rest of the Miami mess. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Danny, let me come back to you real quick because I want to pivot to the other Miami mess that had to be fixed this week, the city's budget. Tell us why state officials told Miami the budget the city commission passed back
1: in September was illegal. Right. Um, It's pretty complicated, but I'll try to bullet down. Basically, when the city passes a budget, they need to set a tax rate. So you own property. What percentage of their property are they taxing per thousand dollars? They call it the millage rate. Um, And there's legal guidelines set by the state to say if you set this kind of rate, you need this kind of vote. And, and and like there's different tiers of it mm-hmm. now. Which makes sense because if
0: you're dealing with people's tax rate, right, yeah, you, you want to make sure the protocols. You, you want a
1: strong majority <laughs> yeah. to 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 set certain kinds of taxes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was former commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla was arrested on corruption charges in he was September. Re- he, yeah. he was removed by Governor DeSantis from office. So they only had four out of five seats. They uh-huh. only had four out of five votes. Right. The, the 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 city attorney made the determination that they could still go forward and pass what needed a five-0 unanimous vote with four seats at the table so they passed this this budget and 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 the taxes at that level and the city a couple months later I mean the, the city argues they should have told them much sooner <laughs> but the city says hey this budget budget is illegal you didn't have the votes you needed the state the state said that told the city that the budget was exactly sorry if i said it otherwise Uh and so they said you know at the penalty of potentially 56 million dollars in penalties from the state you need to go back and you need to do this again and now there's new commissioners sitting at the table and the new commissioner said okay we're gonna set we're gonna do a new a new budget but we're gonna slash taxes so they uh-huh. they actually did went through the the hearing this week they cut 25 million dollars extra in taxes okay. and it did come out that that was an option on the table and Victoria okay. mendez says she said it was a quote business decision not to present it and to move forward with the with the four-0 vote when they needed five zero right and okay.
2: so they they blame her for not giving that option
1: right okay but 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 the bottom line is in the end uh
0: the city did not lose 56 million dollars no that 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 was the penalty on the table okay so things were resolved to a certain extent right right?
2: but the but the the there's a significant cut to the budget with 20 like about yeah, right, yeah, right, exactly. which is
1: good for taxpayers. But uh-huh. in, in terms of a city running smoothly, I mean, it's it's not typical at all for a city to be told by the state, okay. hey, your budget's illegal. You have to run back and do it again. Right. It's just not it, <laughs> and, and, and resolved,
0: her opponent, but it doesn't exactly burnish the city's image. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Let's put it that way. And Josh, that takes us to the pretty serious legal hot seat that former city commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla finds himself in, as we mentioned right? Just just right now, he was arrested <laughs> in September on a raft of corruption charges and was then defeated in his District 1 re-election bid last month by Miguel Gabela. Diles de la Portilla, and, and let's point out, City Attorney Victoria Mendez had tried to keep Gabela off the ballot because of a residence issue. Are they still trying to disqualify Gabela? And that matters because he obviously has become quite a force already on
2: the commission. There's, there's so much to talk about, Tim. Uh, yeah, so they... Uh, Alex Diaz de la Portilla still has an open case against Gabella, arguing that he does not live in the district and that uh, he should be disqualified. And the city also has an appeal um, against the decision where a, a district court judge said Gabella qualifies to be to run as a candidate. The city appealed that, and that appeal is still open uh, because because they appealed it in the first place. Now there's a question about what the city's residency requirement even means. And it, it, they might have kind of thrown it out completely. Um,
1: and, and, and it's also complicated because now Gabella, as a sitting commissioner is a client of that office. Um, <laughs> And then yesterday they voted actually to put his house back in the district. So it's a—I mean, I'm not a lawyer. It, the, the whole question might be moot. I mean, this is if you're listening. Yes, it's ridiculous. Like, like this, is, this is kind of funny. So, yeah, so they
2: the, the city sort of made an enemy out of Gabella before he was elected. And now he's on the dais. Right. And, and the, now he's leading the charge to fire Mendez. He wants to burn a lot of things down
0: with, with the chip on his shoulder. Yeah. And, and Josh, what about the other Miami commissioner in legal hot water? Joe Carroyo, the Little Havana business? business? Business owners who successfully sued him this year for official harassment now want his paycheck garnered so they can start collecting the $63 million that uh, Danny mentioned before that they won in court. Where do things
2: stand with Commissioner Carollo now? I I think he's still trying to fight that there. There's like appeal upon appeal upon appeal uh, where they're trying to fight that order. They believe that the uh, that the decision wasn't even final, even though it was. They're still trying to get some clarity, and so they don't believe that his paycheck should be garnished. But I think the the big issue that... Um, taxpayers and, and people watching are are angry about is why the city was paying the attorney's fees for this and continue. He continues to rack up attorney's fees. So, yeah.
0: And Danny, just re- real quickly, let's remind people up quickly of, of two other major Miami messes from this year. First, the controversy surrounding Mayor Francis Suarez and the very lucrative moonlighting consulting work he's been doing for folks like, oh, say, developers who have business before the city. Where do the investigations into his activities stand now?
1: My understanding is a lot of it's still open. Yeah. Uh, the, the Miami Herald really led the charge. The the great mm-hmm. reporters there on on a lot of uh, that. It certainly didn't help his presidential ambitions. Exactly, I think. Yeah. Um, but but it they are still
0: open. They're still open.
1: And Josh, finally, has has the city of
0: Miami's district map finally been resolved in court?
2: Not exactly. That still goes to trial in January, as Danny mentioned. Uh, Miguel Gabella moved his house back into the district, yeah, just, so did a little bit of tailoring there. <laughs> okay, good. Just, uh, so we've got that. Yeah, that, but uh, but that the, going for us. Yeah, but the redistricting lawsuit from the ACLU of Florida is still pending. Okay. Fun town.
1: Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, especially during the holidays. Oh, yeah. Uh, Joshua Savajos is WLRN's local government and investigations reporter. Danny Rivero is WLRN's investigative reporter. Gents, many thanks and happy holidays. (laughs) Happy holidays. Happy happy holidays, everybody. Still to come, we say farewell and congratulations to a paragon of Miami journalism. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Last summer, the Miami Herald won a Pulitzer Prize for a series of editorials called Broken Promises. It exposed the failure of politicians and developers to follow through on pledges to build a slew of local projects, from parks to public transportation. It's the sort of thing we expect from investigative journalists, but this was a product of the Herald's editorial board, which for the past decade has been led by Nancy Ankrum. Broken Promises was a showcase of the power of opinion journalism to spotlight a city's triumphs and tragedies. And it was a robust example of Ankrum's leadership, which also featured a Pulitzer in 2017 for Herald political cartoonist Jim Morin. So we can only say that Nancy Ankrum is going out on top. She's retiring at the end of this month, and we're fortunate now to say farewell, good luck, and thank you to her for the invaluable dialogue her editorial page has fostered in a metropolis whose remarkable diversity is a community blessing but can also be a communication barrier. Nancy Ancrum joins me now in the studio. Nancy, thanks and congratulations.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Are you a reader of the Miami Herald's editorial page? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Nancy, there are a lot of rock bands out there that wish they could have left at the top of the charts, (laughs) as you're doing now. Should we say you're retiring now in spite of of having just won a Pulitzer, or perhaps because you just won a Pulitzer? Why now?
3: I have been thinking about retiring for a while. I do think that it is always a good idea to move on Mm -hmm. when you've done it, to free up um, a very influential position for someone else. And it is just time. You know, I live in a community where We see the same names running for office, you know, taking a break and then coming back. And I always say, Oh,
0: give it yeah. a rest. We were just talking about some of them in the last segment. Yeah,
3: <laughs> so, give it a rest. Well, right. it's time for me no, to give uh, it a rest, and it's also time for me mm-hmm. to get a little bit of a rest and yep. exhale.
0: Much deserved, right?
3: And um, Amy's the, the the Pulitzer, which was really won by uh, Amy Driscoll. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was her idea who, who, from who conception who right. mm-hmm. to uh, execution to Pulitzer. Well, you know, and, and who
0: not coincidentally is your successor. No? Yes,
3: she is. Mm-hmm. She is my mm-hmm. successor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's not going to get any better than that. Right. And mm-hmm. and I suspect it's going to get a lot worse during election year twenty twenty four. Right.
0: Yeah, better, better to take that break. <laughs> now you're a native New Yorker, and before you came to the Herald forty years ago, you worked for the Baltimore Sun, USA Today. But I'm curious to know how and why did you make the transition from news page editor to opinion page editor? What led you in that direction of journalism?
3: Uh, I wish I could say I had that vision and it was, a, it was just a burning goal of mine. No, it wasn't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> back, then, back then, way back then, and I've been on the board, I guess, 30 years and mm-hmm. then some. Um, a, 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 a woman named Dorothy Gator, who was also an African American, this was back in the days where you lose a black, you need a black, uh, okay. <laughs> sort of thing. Not uh-huh. sure if we're past that. Mm-hmm. And um, I I was uh, I was an editor on the City Desk and um, you know, clueless really about the editorial board and a woman who became a, a good friend was on the board backed me up against the wall in the hall one day and said, apply for Dottie's job. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Uh, okay.
0: Well, you became the Miami Herald's editorial page editor in 2013 and you've said it's the best job you ever had. Why?
3: It it just allows me to meet so many people. It allows me to hear from so many people. Not everyone I want to hear from, of course, but it also has made me a better listener. It's made me uh it's made me a better person. It absolutely has. Mm-hmm. I don't have to argue about any everything. I just do not. Mm-hmm. I don't have to win. I'm talking person to person right and people feel so appreciated mm-hmm. if you just listen to them.
0: Right, and, and and I want to get to that aspect of all this mm-hmm. uh, very soon here, but I also wanted to ask you, what were the major challenges for a Miami opinion page back then, 2013, compared to what they are now? I mean, I look back a decade ago, for example, and the prevailing feeling on the all-important Cuba issue here, for example, was engagement with the island, but that's changed dramatically, obviously, since then. But Cuba is obviously, it's, it's only one of the many issues that relatively, a, a relatively fledgling city like this has to confront. So what, what was the arc of the past decade been like for you, particularly when it comes to city and county government?
3: Well, you know, things came to a screeching halt with the election of Donald Trump. Right. It wasn't really local, uh, but, but how do I want to say this? The editorial board, predating me back to the Jim Hampton days and, and beyond mm-hmm. that, we have always hewed to the Constitution
2: mm-hmm. in
3: our opinions. And this new president seemed to be willing to blow that up mm-hmm. with, with rhetoric, with mean rhetoric, mm-hmm. with, with um, the, the, the targeting, targeting of people that we had not seen from either party. Whether right. we agreed with a certain party's position or not, or the president or not, there was this understanding Right, so three
0: years into your tenure as the editorial page editor, the entire landscape really
3: that landscape changed, changed dramatically yeah. for you. It, yeah. and and really, it was less local. We were bopping along, covering That's local it, yeah. issues, mm-hmm. but uh, and we had to now we have to now deal with that kind of of uh, political demeanor right. filtering down to our state and our local level, so that's where it really changed.
0: We have to mention the innovations that you yourself and the Herald editorial page brought to this genre of of journalism during your tenure. You were very intent on bringing more of the community's input into the work of the editorial board, and you found different, sometimes really avant-garde ways of presenting opinions on the page, like the really engaging Twitter-torials you you introduced some years back. What were some of the
3: innovations that you're most proud of? Really enjoyed our podcast this year, produced with the help of WLRN. Ah, great! And um, it we you know we considered it a branding exercise, and uh, just so people know what a little bit of about our process. There are uh, four of us on the board. A, there's a fifth, um, a, 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 a fifth editor who is our growth editor. She mm-hmm. sits in every day, and I so love and will miss terribly. Our our morning conversations, where we bring the issues up, we talk about them as thoroughly as we can. We do come at them from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, We do get to laugh a bit, and uh, that's where our consensus uh, opinions come from. But I I said one day we ought to have a podcast. There was some doubt. But we moved forward with it. I'm glad you did. And it was a lot of fun. The the good thing is we limited it to Mm -hmm. the legislature and and the culture wars. So there were eight episodes and we were out.
0: This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. I'm talking with the Miami Herald's Pulitzer Prize winning editorial page editor, Nancy Ankrum, who's retiring this month. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, Nancy, no major metropolitan editorial page can escape controversy, of of course, and and nor should it, right? Do any moments stand out for you when your editorial board took a stance that maybe touched a nerve that provoked some real community drama in your memory?
3: Uh, I'm sure there's something. You know what? Back in the day, this was before we were fully staffed, I don't know if it created a lot of drama. Maybe it did. We recommended a candidate Mm -hmm. who said she had taken several rides on a UFO. Uh,
0: You remember that? I I do because my wife's Venezuelan and she's Venezuelan. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? (laughs) Yes, yes, I do. And
3: let me tell you, Uh beyond the rides on the UFO, we took a lot of heat, especially internally. Mm Right. Right. She was just the best candidate of the. I mean, that tells you something. <laughs> something about it, right. That tells you something uh, about the candidates that were running against her. Right. She w- had been an elected official in Doral, I think, and yeah. she was an accomplished businesswoman. And you,
0: and you, and that's part. I mean, you have to sift through all of that, right? As 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 an editorial page. But are are there any angry phone calls from politicians or other luminaries that you had to take uh, over this past decade that stand out, or? happy calls. Yeah, no, we've gotten
3: calls I, I, yeah. and, and I've gotten calls and you know mm-hmm. I get them early in the morning. I'm not sh- quite sure how my cell phone number got out there but everyone <laughs> seems to have it. And so yes, mm-hmm. we d- I, get, I do get angry texts uh, the, the, this last go round with uh, my both Miami Beach and Miami elections mm-hmm. um, just this month or maybe last month um, people we did, candidates we did not recommend right. um, I did get texts from them But Uh, I
0: I remember how even keeled you are about those reactions, though. I remember one morning you called me after an op-ed of mine that you'd published elicited a strong letter from the subject of the article, whom I won't name here. And you started the conversation telling me, ooh, is he mad at you? (laughs) But you said it in a way that seemed to say, this is good. This is what opinion journalism is about. You don't take part in it to necessarily be right right. Yes. all the time you do it to provoke the discussion that needs to be had and so I wanted to ask you has this idea that been sort of lost in opinion journalism in the age of Fox and MSNBC has too much opinion journalism in this country devolved into a zero-sum game of I'm good you're evil instead of that discussion
3: absolutely absolutely which is why what I consider what we do True opinion journalism. Yes, you want to provoke people, but you want people to think. Right. You want people to think critically. You want people to learn something first, Mm -hmm. uh, to to learn a fact or two, and to process it before that knee jerks, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think that, I think we have been able to convey that in all of our editorials in terms of the calm tone that we use Mm -hmm. we use outrage when when we we pump it up when we have to we pump it up when you know we have a governor who perhaps is has not hopped on to covid uh um back in 2020 when everyone was so scared you know um but we we we, and i don't want to say we we Take an even tone all the time—that would be boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have some—we some, have good writers who know how to use humor, who know how to use irony, who know how to who know how to poke people, um, all when appropriate.
0: Now, I mentioned earlier the innovations to opinion journalism that you and your editorial board brought to the Miami <laughs> Herald. I think the recent Pulitzer Prize-winning series, "Broken Promises," was a good example. Why do you think that project not only won a Pulitzer, but elicited the strong community response it did, not, not just the subject matter, but the way it was done?
3: Amy did so much deep reporting. And, the, you know, the, the, there two. There were two types of people.
0: And again, Amy Driscoll. Was Amy Driscoll, mm-hmm. right.
3: um, who, who won the Pulitzer, on, uh, you know, for the board uh, with Broken Promises. There are two types of people that we were addressing, maybe three. The 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 people who had been here a long time. I mean, the minute she brought up Broken Promises and talked about some of the issues she wanted to include, even I said, oh, yeah, whatever happened to that? Mm-hmm. So those people needed to be reminded. And then, of course, this is a community of with constant churn, constant newcomers, and they needed to be apprised of what they were missing out on. Mm-hmm. And, of course elected officials needed to know that, you know what, you might not have been in office when this promise was made, but it is still on you. Right.
0: Now, I wanted to ask you also a sort of a two-part question. Looking back, Nancy, what have you found most gratifying about the community and the governments you and your editorial board have been weighing in on? For the past decade, uh, this is a v- obviously a very unique community uh, as far as you know this country goes. What what's been most gratifying about weighing in on on it?
3: What's been most gratifying is that people seek us out. Yes, they seek out our colleagues in the newsroom, mm-hmm. but they do want to talk to the editorial board. Not just not just elected officials and opinion makers and opinion leaders, but I say real people, people who are running nonprofits, people who are working with the vulnerable Mm -hmm. in this community. They seek us out because they know they will get a hearing and a fair hearing. And it is good for us to know what is going on out there. Amy, again, took the lead in getting us on a, uh, to getting the board to take a trip to the new mental health facility, mm-hmm. that I don't think it's opened yet, but that will be opening, and it's been spearheaded by um, uh, uh, one of the judges uh, here, okay. um, who has been a longtime advocate of um, of uh, the, the the mentally ill. Now,
0: Nancy, in the 30 seconds we have left, I I just also wanted to ask you, what do you hope your own legacy now is for opinion journalism in South Florida that the next generation will pick up in the next decade?
3: Opening up the page to a broad variety of voices, I made it my business to when when I had a discussion with people at a party, like, you know, a cocktail party or mm-hmm. an art opening or yeah. wherever, if someone had some was involved in something really interesting, yeah. I would say, please write us an op-ed about that. People need to know. And so I hope that continued broadening mm-hmm. of voices presented on our page and I, online I continues. Would,
0: I would say, as someone who was involved in it myself with you, I would say that it definitely did. Nancy Ankram is the Miami Herald's departing editorial page editor. Nancy, again, best of luck, happy holidays, and thanks for all the stellar work you and your team did for this community.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Still to come, is Venezuela's saber-rattling at Guyana serious or a stunt? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Way back in 1899, when the South American country we know today as Guyana was still a British colony, it had a border dispute with its neighbor, Venezuela. At issue was a 61,000-square-mile territory known as Esequibo, and international arbitration drew the boundary to give the Esequibo to Guyana. Since then, Venezuela has always claimed that, ar- that that arbitration was rigged, and it still claims the oil-rich Essequibo as part of Venezuela. So what does a dictatorial Venezuelan leader do if he's facing re-election next year, but he's responsible for the worst humanitarian crisis in modern South American history? Well, if you're Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, you, of course, try to make voters forget all that by threatening to heroically invade Guyana and take back the Essequibo. The question is, is Maduro just acting out a nationalist stunt, or could this get really ugly? A lot of Venezuelan expats here hate Maduro, but also believe Essequibo belongs to Venezuela. So what do you think of Venezuela's Guyana saber-rattling? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is Brian Fonseca. He directs the Gordon Institute for Public Policy at Florida International University and is an expert on hemispheric security issues. Brian, thanks for being with us. Oh,
4: thanks so much for having me.
0: Let's start with the news from yesterday, actually. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and Guyanese President Ifan Ali held discussions in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and an agreement was apparently struck that neither side would take any act of aggression in this territorial dispute. Brian, do you think that means Maduro is really backing off, or can we still expect the saber-rattling shenanigans from him?
4: No, I don't think that Maduro is backing off. Uh, I think that, again, this was... Uh, the product of 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 President Ali and 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 Maduro coming to some type of arrangement to halt the escalation of military conflict. Okay, but I don't think Maduro is going to back off the claims. In fact, I think that. Oh yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I think he's. Nor nor do I think it necessarily implies that there's there that that we have solved the problem or or there's a peaceful resolution. That is in hand. I, I think it stalls or at least stops for now. Mm-hmm. Maduro's threats of the use of military force to annex that, um, you know, for 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 Venezuela. And and again, just as, as a point here, Maduro to some degree put himself in a corner by holding a referendum among Venezuelans that, you know, he claims was overwhelmingly supportive <laughs> right, right. of annexing that territory. Yeah, And,
0: we'll, and we're going to get to that. But now now you pointed out to my
4: colleague, Andres Oppenheimer, this
0: week that there is reason for concern uh, here because Venezuela's military is significantly larger than Guyana's, obviously. How much bigger are we talking about?
4: That's right. I mean, it's it's a massive, um, massive difference in terms of you know capacity and size of force. The Venezuelans have collectively about 400,000, um, a fairly modernized uh, Navy and a fairly modernized Air Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 400,000 is also inclusive about 200,000 militia and maybe up to ten, eight to 10,000 reserves, and then the rest in the active military across the army right. navy and air force the, the the Guyanese on the other side have less than 5000 collectively right uh, may may even reach 4000 more, more like the size of have... the
0: Miami-Dade police force yeah
4: <laughs> that's yeah that's exactly right and doesn't have near the 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 technical or or tactical uh capacity that maybe even the Miami-Dade police force has right, right? uh so I, again it's 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 certainly a big differential in terms of military muscle.
0: Now, even though Guyanese President Ali insists that the Essequibo unquestionably belongs to Guyana, do you think that this military disparity we're talking about is why he even decided to meet with Maduro in St. Vincent this week? I mean, in other words, to get Maduro to make a more public pledge that he won't deploy Venezuela's armed forces in any way in this dispute?
4: That's probably the only thing that that President Ali could, could get from this meeting is some public display of de-escalation by by Maduro. I don't think there's much more uh, President Ali could have gotten from this because at the end of the day, the way it stands, Guyana has everything to lose in this. Yeah. Uh, and, And I think that that from a geopolitical perspective, Maduro has everything to gain.
0: Right. Now, we should remind people that this dispute is currently being heard by the UN's International Court of Justice or World Court in The Hague. But let's say the court eventually rules in Guyana's favor and reaffirms Guyana's control of the Essequibo. Do you think Maduro and his regime intend to respect a ruling like that, or will they keep on claiming that the Essequibo belongs to Venezuela?
4: I don't think they'll respect the outcome if it doesn't go in their favor. Yeah, I, I would
0: agree with you, yeah.
4: And I don't think many Venezuelans would respect it either, so yeah. it would be unpopular for Maduro in the regime to accept that. I think the, the 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 threats and assertions of the claim will continue mm-hmm. until Venezuela has has annexed the, the territory that they, they feel belongs to them.
0: Now I think the referendum Maduro held in Venezuela this month in which he asked voters if the country should declare the Esequibo a state of Venezuela was in itself a pretty good indication that he really doesn't care what the world court has to say about this, as you just mentioned. But at the same time, was the referendum even credible, especially the part where he says 15 million people voted and 98% said yes to annexing two-thirds of Guyana's territory?
4: I suspect the numbers were inflated. (laughs) Yeah, My gut tells me the numbers are inflated. (laughs) Right, But, But I still think the concept of Venezuelans feeling passionately about Mm-hmm. this territory belonging to them is probably consistent with broad sentiment yes uh, perhaps not that high but but nor is that many people passionate about it but certainly venezuelans i think majority feel that this territory does belong to them.
0: Right. But but at the same time, was this just a nationalist stunt on Maduro's part to deflect attention away from the collapse of Venezuela's economy and his own brutal authoritarian rule as U.S. and international pressure grows on him to hold a fair and transparent presidential election next year?
4: I I think in part, yes, uh, Tim, I I think in part it's about um, it's about shoring up domestic support, but yeah. here's the problem right now that you've claimed to hold the referendum and if you don't get the territory, does that work right? You know, as you said, it, he could have inch. painted
0: himself into a corner
4: yeah, right and and I think what this might be about beyond sort of the 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 sort of nationalist posture is it gives Maduro more leverage in negotiations with the United States mm-hmm. that are going that are ongoing to keep the United States from reapplying sectoral sanctions, which of course, undermines Venezuela's, you know, oil, uh, energy production capacity. Right. Right. And yeah. so I think part of it is Maduro didn't have much leverage. The, the, the opposition holding, a, a, an unsanctioned, um, primary in which Maria Corina Machado won right. with some argue 94% of the vote,
0: mm-hmm.
4: the, the United States asserting that to have a free and fair election next year, it must include the opposition. Yeah. I think Maduro didn't have much leverage. He right. can't afford to let Maria run. Right. I don't think that's going to bode well. So he's um, so
0: he's sort of taking desperate
4: measures now. I think so. Yeah. This, so now, right. in negotiations with the United States, de-escalation mm-hmm. of Guyana is on the table.
0: This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. We're talking about Venezuela's ramped-up aggression towards Guyana and what it means for the hemisphere. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, Brian, we should point out that even if Maduro's plebiscite was a bit of a sham, as you have pointed out, most Venezuelans, no matter what they think of Maduro, do believe that the Essequibo belongs to Venezuela, and they have for more than a century. When I lived in Venezuela in the 1980s, one of the things... I noticed all the time was that maps of the country always included the Essequibo shaded in with the words, Territorio en Reclamacion. <laughs> right, territory and That's reclamation. Right. Why can they not let this go? Is it the large reserves of oil that are there in that territory, or is it more than that?
4: I think it's more than that. I mean, certainly we can't underestimate the fact that there is tremendous resources, right? I mean, this particular region, uh, is rich with 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 an abundance of national re- re- natural resources, including gold and diamonds, bauxite. Of course, the massive potential oil finds, uh, you know, in mm-hmm. and off the coast of the territory. There is certainly an economic interest, sure, um, that's at play in all of this. At the same time, I also think that there's a bit of um, you know sort of cultural, historical. Um, you know, perceptions among the Venezuelan people that this is part of their territory, yeah, and that the colonial experience was not good to them,
0: right? And that's that's really at the heart of this, in many ways, is that, that this was a Guyana was a British colony, and they feel that the arbitration back in eighteen ninety nine was rigged because of Great Britain's, uh, you know, uh, 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 influence in the world.
4: That's absolutely right, and I think that's a legacy that lives deep. If you think about you know, even the the sort of the 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 Chavez experience and resurrecting anti-colonialism is part of a a thread to his populist rise in in Venezuela at the turn of of, of the century onto today and how again um, the 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 narrative of of anti-imperialism um, continues to be pushed into. Venezuelan, you know, Venezuelan uh, texture. I, I think that yeah. it, it this becomes one of those threads that is meaningful for a lot of Venezuelans, even those that don't buy into what Chavez, you know, promoted or right. what Maduro promotes today. It's still something that goes beyond the domestic politics.
0: But one of the ironies is that it, that, that resonates even here. I mean, we should point out that in South Florida, while most expats hate maduro a lot of them too grew up believing the Essequibo belongs to their native country the political opposition in venezuela even declared that the Essequibo belongs to venezuela recently so how do you think venezuelan exiles here view what maduro is doing now
4: i think that's going to be tough for for venezuelans here to reconcile because while they might believe um the the that you know what he's doing is consistent with their beliefs. They are ardently in opposition to who he is and what he represents for Venezuela. Right, so it's sort of a dilemma, no? It's a dilemma, certainly.
0: Now, despite this apparent agreement Maduro struck in St. Vincent yesterday, Brian, we can't forget that in recent years he has gone beyond just rhetoric, and he's taken certain disturbing actions like having his military board, oil exploration ships working for Guyana off the Essequibo coast. Is it reasonable to expect that he'll keep up with those sorts of shenanigans, even if he doesn't order a full-blown invasion of Guyana?
4: I think so. I think so. I mean, it's it's quite possible that there there is a more enduring, long term strategy to annex that territory over time. Yeah, there's the discussion of moving populations into that space to plant the flag. Yeah, uh, and there are probably other things that the the government could and might do in the future in order to continue to assert its claims, even if it's not mm-hmm. deploying paratroopers by air, you know, right. to set up, you know, robust military outposts.
0: But this is also causing a lot of regional anxiety in South America and the Caribbean, right, Brian, or else w- we wouldn't see leaders like Brazilian President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva getting so involved in mediating the current tension between Venezuela and Guyana. In the minute, the 30 seconds that we have left, what are the biggest hemispheric security concerns involved here as you see them?
4: well i think that's certainly it i mean this does not does not bode well for maduro to create a fracture with the you know lula and petro who might be a little bit more inclined to support you know maduro in the region um, at a time when, again, there's tremendous tension between the United States and, and others in, in, in Venezuela. So I, I think that's part of it um, is is, again, there's some disruption to the geopolitics in right. the broader regional political dynamic that, that that could be at play here.
0: Yeah. Uh, Brian, unfortun- unfortunately for time, we're going to have to leave it there. I-, I appreciate it very much. Brian Fonseca directs the Gordon Institute for Public Policy at Florida International University. Brian, many thanks and ha- happy holidays. Tim,
4: thanks so much for having me. Same to you. Finally on the roundup.
3: Mayor of Miami-Dade County, hereby grant a full mayoral pardon for Taylor and Travis and wish them many happy, healthy years roaming their new Miami-Dade County home. Thank you, thank you.
0: Politicians are known for pork barreling, but this time it didn't cost the taxpayers, and it saved two very cute little piggies' lives. This week, Mayor Levine Cava pardoned those cochinitos from becoming Noche Buena Lechon, or Christmas Eve Roast Pig, the 6th Annual Pork Reprieve, which is of course a 305 version of the White House's annual Thanksgiving turkey pardon, took place at Latin Cafe 2000 in Brickell. Now, instead of heading for a cajachina, these happy hogs, which are named after the celebrity couple Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey, can now live out a life of swine and roses at the Bonanza Equestrian Center's petting zoo in West Miami-Dade. Felicidades. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Helen Acevedo with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado.